I'm Adrian Bonnenberger, and you're listening to another episode of the WBT, Wrath Bearing Trees Award Worthy Podcast. You hear that, awards? Looking for a podcast to recognize with your cash and fame? We're right here. And now, a word from our sponsors, ourselves, David James and Mike Carson. Dave, Mike, how's it going? It's going well, Adrian. Adrian, yeah, it's going well. Yeah. How was the intro? Did that sound good? I was impressed. Yeah, we sound like professional. That's good. Pretty, pretty solid. Yeah. Too solicitous. <laughs> we can never be too solicitous. So. Well, today we're going to be talking about a short story by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, Deutsches Requiem, about a Prussian aristocrat uh, who became a Nazi. And uh, before I turn it over to David for a summary, uh, he's graciously volunteered to summarize it. He, it was also his idea uh, to read this story. I just wanted to point out very quickly that uh, this is the second time we're recording this episode. Uh, we recorded it first about a year ago and I lost the recording. So, uh, but this story was sufficiently important to all of us that we really wanted to come back to it and talk about it. So uh, without any further ado, David, read us in on Deutsches Requiem. Yeah, okay. Thanks, guys. Let's see. We got a short story by Borges, and all his stories were short, of course, uh, as we know. This one is uh, quite particular. I think we're going to dig into the details and uh, discuss why a little bit. Published in 1946 for the first time, so it was less than a year after the end of World War II, and the subject matter is World War II specifically distilled into uh, the last statement of a soon-to-be executed uh, Nazi war criminal who goes by the name of Otto Dietrich Zerlinde. And uh, so it's, it's about a six-page, uh, very philosophical, intellectual uh, last statement by this fictional character uh, who's sort of defending his actions as a concentration camp uh, commandant, uh, as a torturer and murderer of Jews. And he's spinning it into a very strange and yet compelling uh, philosophical uh, statement of, you know, how actually what they did wasn't so bad based on, you know, his personal beliefs. It, it's a really weird and contradictory story uh, that's kind of, I think the only example of Borges really delving into current politics in any of his fiction. Um, <clears throat> he wrote tons of fiction and he never really talked about politics or current events and, and this is about the only time. So he kind of, he takes the entire massive historical event that, which had just happened of World War II boils that down into the whole thing is just about the Nazis and everybody else in the world is, is reacting to the Nazis. And he, he creates this one character who is sort of a prototypical Nazi or is not. Maybe he's completely an impossible Nazi. But this one person is sort of his representation of the entire event of World War II and his, uh, his commentary on what what the hell happened to the German people in German culture. And that's kind of the, the subtext here. It's Borges, who is a cultured, you know, extremely learned man, a lover of German culture and all world culture, also a lover of the Jewish nation, finding a way to justify somehow philosophically how this could even happen. This one is a, a great prototype. I think he's doing a lot of his typical things we can talk about. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I want to really quickly read uh, Borges' statement of why he wrote the story in his own words. And this is just, um, I got this off of Wikipedia, in which it says, in an interview with Richard Bergen, Borges recalled how his interactions with Argentina's Nazi sympathizers led him to write the short story. Quote, and then I realized that those people that were on the side of Germany, that they never thought of German victories or the German glory, 
what they really liked was the idea of the Blitzkrieg, of London being on fire, of the country being destroyed. As to the German fighters, they took no stock in them. Then I thought, well now, Germany has lost. Now America has saved us from this nightmare. But since nobody can doubt on which side I stood, I'll see what can be done from a literary point of view in favor of the Nazis. And then I created the ideal Nazi. Of course, no Nazi was ever like that. They were all full of self-pity. When they were on trial, no one thought of saying, yes, I'm guilty, I ought to be shot. Why not? This is as it should be, and I would shoot you if I could. Nobody said that. They were all apologizing and crying. That's a great blurb, Adrian. I, that um, helps me think through this story in a new way. This ideal Nazi. Um, yeah, it's funny, because David, you also said earlier that like this is not typical for Borges. Like he's making a historical comment on an event. And it's funny because at the same time, it also is very much like Borgesian because he takes this historical event and makes it timeless. Like it's the ideal Nazi. And to me reading this, I don't know about you all, but the second time through, especially he turned, he takes this historical event, a specific event and makes it ahistorical, makes it timeless. That kind of, becomes the argument to me in some ways um, of this ideal Nazi who is not apologetic and who in some way is seeking his death because he's not concerned with the particular nature of his reality. It's the same old Borges taking a current event and then spinning it and pushing it to this timeless area. I don't know, that's why I really enjoyed the story because I see him combating his own sympathies with this timeless version of existence. Uh, and I don't wanna get too into it right away, but that there's this combat between him and a Jewish character, David Jerusalem, in the story. And Jerusalem is a poet who's described as like the poet of the particular. And I find this kind of, this battle that goes on there fascinating. He moves it to the plane of the ideal. Just to me, it's always Borges. It's where he goes immediately, even when he's trying to be historical. Yeah, exactly. And very little of the the story is real narrative or chronology of events. A lot of it is just his discussion with himself. And it's clearly Borges writing it. It could be no one else, even though it's the voice of this character who is a, you know, a Nazi, uh, an unashamed murderer and torturer. Uh, but and yet at the same time, this guy is is name dropping the same old guys like we've got shapes Shakespeare and Schopenhauer Nietzsche we've got you know ancient Greeks and Romans we've got Plato and Aristotle and we've got all the typical Borgesian contradictions and comparisons and discussions and one-liners about he's, he's kind of putting the whole world into single images or objects and this ideal Nazi he tried to create is basically a Borgesian Nazi and He's clearly not a Nazi at all, except that he says he is and that, you know, he's he's fine with that. But I mean, if we could maybe go back a little bit to the beginning, we have the character himself. I think it's interesting to look at because we've got um, the first lines of my name is Otto Dietrich Zerlinde. And the first paragraph is just setting up the ancient lineage of this Prussian nobleman who had ancestors who fought in the Seven Years' War and died. He had another who fought in the Franco-Prussian War and died. He had another who fought in World War I. And then he himself is to be shot as a torturer and murderer. And that's a segue. And then he says, of course, the court has acted rightly. I have confessed my guilt. And the whole time he has no remorse, no guilt. And so he puts up very brief synopsis of his family, which are Prussian military men and nobility. And then he goes back and says, he has two passions in life, which were music and metaphysics. Okay, so first of all, he was this, you know, we think of these Prussian, you know, Bismarck type, you know, pointed helmet, militaristic, nationalistic guys, which he is or claims to be. But then he also loves music and metaphysics. And now he starts going into long digressions about culture, literature, philosophy, talking about Brahms, Schopenhauer. And then I like this line, I would add another colossal Germanic name, William Shakespeare. 
So only this extreme nationalist German character could, could say William Shakespeare was a Germanic name. That kind of jumped out at me. So everything is very from the German point of view. He's justifying German, Germany's greatness over and over. And then he goes into Nietzsche, Spangler, Goethe. He talks about Christianity. Then, you know, Schopenhauer turned him against Christianity. It's extremely intellectual and literary and philosophical in a way that actually I, I can't imagine any true believing Nazi ever doing, really. But in between these long paragraphs of philosophical exposition and discussion, we get very brief lines of the actual, in one line we get, in 1929, I joined the party. And then we get another long paragraph about religious beliefs, theologians, and what have you. So we're getting little bits at a time in between long justifications. Then we have a lot more discussion of morality and compassion. And then we get David Jerusalem. We get a long discussion, including Whitman and uh, Shakespeare again. This is all to, to say that Otto Diedrich actually had to make David Jerusalem go insane by torturing him, and he ended up killing himself. He says that was to destroy his own compassion. And then, you know, we get another long discussion. At the end, all this led up to his justification, not just for himself, but for Germany and for Hitler to create the world they wanted to create. But it's sort of built on this huge foundation. There's a couple of points I want to make really quickly. The first one being that I took, I'm not sure if this is true, but I took the description of Shakespeare as a Germanic name, not because shake and spear are uh, Germanic words from Old English, but because he's shaking a spear. You know, it's, you know, this is Shakespeare's, it's, this is the part of Shakespeare that is most, that and the, you know, the character of Shylock are the most relevant pieces of Shakespeare to this person that like, these are the parts of it that are Germanic, the, the bellicosity. Um, I don't know if it's yeah, that, true or not. That's, that's great, though. <laughs> that, that totally fits with the militaristic overtones here. The Germanic name. I, so the other thing I wanted to point out here is another thing that uh, Borges uses, and I'm not, I don't know if this is something he uses frequently in his stories, but plays a pretty prominent role here, is the footnotes. So he has these little footnotes that are written into the text, which gives it this patina of academic merit. Uh, I mean, the Nazis use all of, all of these methods of seeming uh, credible or seeming authoritative. The footnotes themselves are not constructed the way a typical footnote is. They're more like digressions than footnotes. But in one of the footnotes, in fact, the one where he is describing what happens with David Jerusalem, he, there's actually the footnote itself interrupts a lacuna in the text. And I, as you both know, I love lacunae. I love when there's a space in the text that is a kind of whole that tells a greater story inside the text, like Hemingway does in uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, where there's that story about the, the Republicans taking the village and killing all of the 20 greatest fascists in the village. And that goes on for dozens of pages and the bloodshed is horrible. And it's a really tough part to read in the book. And at the end, Hemingway's character says, but that it was um, uh, Pilar, the, the, the mother, um, uh, or the matriarchal figure in the story says, but that wasn't the worst thing that happened in the village. The worst thing was that the fascists took the village a couple weeks later or whatever it was. But that is a story for another day. And similarly in here, you have this lacunae where he talks about, as you were saying, David, he describes everything that he was doing, like who, who David Jerusalem is, the poet of the particular, what type of a poet Jerusalem is, what type of a person um, Jerusalem is on a certain level. And then he begins to get into the particulars of what happens, uh, what he does. I had realized many years before I met David Jerusalem that everything in the world can be the seed of a possible hell, a face, a word, a compass, and an advertisement for cigarettes. Anything can drive a person insane if that person cannot manage to put it out of his mind. Wouldn't a man be mad if he constantly had before his mind's eye the map of Hungary? I decided to apply this principle to the disciplinary regimen of our house and, and that's it. He doesn't go into what, what the thing is that he uses, 
to uh, drive Jerusalem insane. And that's the fact that Borges puts it in here in this way, to me, feels like that is the entire counter argument against Nazism, is that you have a very hazy conception of the world that's very abstract, that deals in these lofty notions of what is right and what isn't right. The Jews are bad somehow in a way that's never correctly or historically described. It's just a bunch of conspiracy theories and, and shoddily put together slanders and smears. But then when you get right down to it, what did the Nazis do? Well, they tortured people until they committed suicide or they just flat out killed them. But that's not in the text because of course that's, that can't be part of his defense, that, that accounting of what he did. That's the essence of what he did, but it's too terrible to tell. Yeah, and actually those footnotes are, I read it as um, you know, the fictional editor of this last testament, who was also Borges anyway, but it says editor, but the editor has excised a number of lines there. So Otto Diedrich Zerlinde did write what he did, you know, no big deal. He, he tortured him in this particular way, but in editing it and it being published in whatever fictional journal this is supposed to be, they had to cut those out because it was too graphic. Because the next footnote, also this editor, has done the research to look for this David Jerusalem. And, you know, the scholars have concluded that actually he didn't exist, but it probably was an amalgamation of various other Jewish intellectuals who were actually killed and tortured under the same guy, including another named one who did exist, according to the fictional editor, but even though she is also really fictional. So it's another metafictional technique here where Borges is building up a false narrative on top of another fictional world. But a false narrative it, that I was taken in by, in fact. Yeah, right. No, he, he does it other times and it's just another, yeah, literary technique he, he likes. And the very first one in the story here is contradicts the entire story of this guy because, you know, we hear about all these war heroes of the family, but the editor jumps in and is like, actually the most famous one he didn't mention because it was a scholar who translated some Jewish writings and was praised by some Jewish uh, scholars. So yeah, typical Nazis, they just build their world up around how they feel instead of using real logic. Yeah, it's, it's funny to me, like that, back to like that point in the story where Adrian pointed out the, um, where he's describing what it means to go insane. Anything can drive a person insane and that person cannot manage to put it out of his mind. And he's, he's trying to like make an argument that he drove Jerusalem insane, but I love reading that as like his own insanity in this kind of intellectual insanity where he, as you both kind of pointed out, creates this system that always justifies what happens to him and what he does and leaves out anything that could be uncomfortable to it. And like the religious figure or his ancestor who was a famous theologian and keeps all the military people. And when you mentioned Shakespeare earlier, it's funny, I read that a third way, I guess. Like, I thought it was just the Nazi or fascist mindset where you, anything that you love and is good is therefore part of your heritage and you kind of create a narrative. If you went to Germany in the 1930s, you'd hear people saying that Shakespeare is technically an Aryan or something because of some convoluted theory. And I thought Borges was just having fun with that. And you see this happening this consistency that they see as consistency, but which is really like a form of insanity. And he's describing his own insanity to me there. And which I, to comment on what you were saying, David, like it is the editor, but the excision of those lines to me becomes like a Borgesian like joke again on this intellectual approach to the world and to experience. And that they cut that particular part out like Borges is making fun of himself I, and his own predilections, his own idealism. I feel like his, the way that he gravitates toward it in all of his work, and not that he's sympathetic to this character, but to this way of seeing the universe, I feel that there is this kind of correspondence or a certain sense of, uh, they're, they're touching each other in some ways. Kind of the hyper-intellectual approach where you have these editorial notes creates this unitary system that leaves out those details. And so I feel it's kind of a self-criticism on some levels when I read that, the editor jumping in at those certain points. It is weird though, because one note, like on the second page, like is from, I believe, from the narrator, but the other ones are from the editor. Um, but I just wanted to point that out. 
but I guess to sum up there, just thinking like this idea for me, looking at the story, this narrator, this need to create this unity and forcing it on the details and facts. And there's this artist about him and a philosopher about him. And I always find it funny how Borges is wrestling with his own desires there and ways of seeing of the world at times. Yeah, and I think when we heard before Borges said that this was his attempt to create an ideal Nazi and in a literary way, and it wasn't about his beliefs, everybody knows them. He was uh, strongly anti-fascist and everything else. But yeah, for saying ideal Nazi and seeing how it's written, clearly Borges is trying to describe um, how he would justify himself if he was a Nazi. You know, this is how he would create his... Uh, his justification. I mean, and it's so overtly Borgesian. I mean, even just the obvious references in the style he uses. I mean, he talks about labyrinths. He talks about, you know, a guy who painted tigers. He has quotes like people are either <coughs> Aristotelians or Platonists. You know, he mentions the same people that he himself likes a lot, like Schopenhauer and everyone else. And he, he has so many prototypical Borgesian lines. Let heaven exist, though our place be in hell. All these lines where he's, yeah, he's trying to make, uh, I guess if we look at Borges, his literary project in a way, you know, everything he wrote was very short, but it was universal. Every single thing he, he wrote or talked about was sort of one little piece of a universal picture of the world and existence, but in the extreme minute details in particulars, and with metaphysical debates about existence, he was fascinated by, you know, the pictures of infinite and universal situations. And so I think in the story, you know, we have a character who himself is a Nazi and is he's fine with that. He's proud of it. He's, he doesn't care if he's executed because at least the other side will win and maybe Christianity will be destroyed and violence will reign. But in the bigger picture, like Whitman is also mentioned in here. Borges was a huge fan of Whitman. And he talks about how he takes delight in the smallest thing and uh, catalogs the whole world. This is kind of like Borges' one chapter in cataloging the world. And this is the World War II chapter. Like this is how he would describe it all the words he needs to say about World War II to anybody would be in this story, which is a fake Nazi justifying Dickens from philosophical ideas across the spectrum to say why he tortured people and why it had to be done to create a more violent, you know, Nietzschean Superman world. Definitely. When I think of his project often, as you described it, David, I like that. Like, this is another chapter in... Not an attempt of like, this is like the World War II chapter, but it's the same like conflict that he's presenting over and over again in every single one of these stories. And like, when you want to look at his writing in terms of like plotting and craft and like building character conflict, like it doesn't have those traditional elements because it does have this like kind of deep seated, I don't want to say philosophical argument. It's about this idealism versus like the particular. And I feel like they're always fighting and he finds different instances in time to kind of have this confrontation. And the footnotes to me are kind of a, another like manifestation of this, as you pointed out, where the argument is taking place between the text and the outside text. And really like, and just, you know me, I mean, I'm a huge like Kierkegaard person. I read a lot of him and like he, Kierkegaard does this too. Like this is a, this is a thing in the 1800s was done, where you have these arguments between the author and himself in the text. And I feel Borges is having fun with that same idea. This is like the conflict he generates, if you appreciate his work or get into his work more, less so than like the particular stories. But that in itself is part of the problem, I think Borges, is why I always see this like a self-criticism. He sees that movement as leaving out the details, right? The specifics. Uh, and he's always kind of, he's aware of that. And that gives to me like this poignancy to his work. And even in a story like this, especially where he's seeing how someone could do something so horrific and justify it in this way, it, he sees again, like how his own idealism might push him in that direction. And he's using this kind of framing to, to fight it back against it. That's how I always have read this or his work. The first time I read it, I was very powerfully affected by the story and no less so 
this time upon the second reading. It's, it's a really, it's really challenging on an emotional level because you're being presented with, if you're familiar with the details that are, that underlie everything, the concentration camp. And if you don't know what a concentration camp is, you'll still find parts of the story horrifying because it talks about torturing a person and breaking them psychologically. Which reminds me too of another uh, story that we wrote, uh, that we read, The Royal Game, Chess Story uh, by Zweig. That has yeah. at its heart as well, the horror of psychological, an arbitrary psychological trauma uh, inflicted upon somebody simply because it is, it is within one group's power to inflict it, not because they have any particular reason for it. They start out with the reason, but then once it becomes clear that they, they can't get this information from the person, they continue on with their program of torture until he's broken, at which point he's essentially, he's let go. So this, there is something about that at, at the center of the story that's really, really unpleasant. Horrifying because the, char- the central character seems, not, seems completely unapologetic. It, and that was one of the reasons I, I found Borges's own gloss on the story, whether this is true or not. It's also possible that he's talking about the story afterwards and he himself is kind of taken aback by what he's written. That vision of a person who would detail as a part of their, not defense, but their apologia, their description of the thing that has happened, uh, a confession of sorts, but a confession that itself is a kind of weapon, what he had done in such detail that the editor would, in the logic of the story, have to remove those lines, which is how it's put in the fourth footnote. There's, there's no point in, in detailing what this person did to David Jerusalem or himself, uh, because it's just, it would be awful to read. Yeah, <clears throat> I know what you mean, Adrian. It, it is a very powerful story, actually. And even rereading it, there's, there's something about it that's, um, it's emotional because we know all the context. I think the fact of a character like this who is unapologetic and lacks any remorse for what he's, what he's done is, is always a powerful, uh, it's a weapon in itself. And, you know, for certain people, it, it's sort of appealing in a way. It's, it seems to be brave. And I think throughout the story, you know, we have this character talking about he feels no guilt, he's, he has no fear, he also doesn't wish he wishes to be understood only. And, you know, it's justifying this, but it, he's making himself into his own type of hero. He repeats over and over that he is not a coward. He did not lack valor. He did everything for his own strong beliefs and to test himself. He feared that they would be disappointed by the cowardice of England and Russia. Throughout the story, we get mentions of cowardice and valor and bravery and, uh, we get some breathtaking lines that no Nazi could have said. I mean, this whole paragraph, he says, to die for a religion is simpler than living that religion fully. Battling savage beasts in Ephesus is less difficult, thousands of obscure martyrs did it, than being Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. A single act is quicker than all the hours of man. The battle and the glory are easy. Raskolnikov's undertaking was more difficult than Napoleon's. You know, he has these uh, comparisons between, you know, heroes or quick actions and himself. You know, he has to torture in order to kill his compassion. He's got a powerful argument, even though it's completely grotesque, just because he claims that he's, uh, he's not afraid and he's uh, courageous. Very disturbing, knowing, you know, the context. And it reminds me, of some sort of a manifesto by a mass killer, like the Norwegian fascist mass murderer who shot something like 80 young children a few years ago and still defends himself and is a hero in the extreme right wing. And, you know, he publishes his ideas like this. It's kind of what it reminds me of. It doesn't matter what you do in a certain sense, as long as you continue to defend it at all costs as one step to a greater good that you believe in, no matter what it takes or what that world is, as long as you hold to those beliefs, uh, a small part of people respect that and are also seduced by it. And that's kind of what I see here. 
Well, and I don't think it takes a huge brain genius to draw parallels between that phenomenon and other things that are happening culturally in the United States and in Europe right now. And I think you're exactly right, David, that, that this character, the, the unapologetic hero who is immune to criticism, something about that character is really, really seductive to, I guess, people who feel vulnerable or feel open to criticism for whatever reason. They feel that a person like this is, is a good leader. But then that's another odd thing about Deutsches Requiem is that this is the protagonist, but this isn't Hitler. It's not that this is even a person who's characterized as a leader in the movement. It's somebody who is the ideal Nazi, but not somebody who goes to the Nuremberg trials. He's, he's, he's put on trial. He's a concentration t uh, camp commandant. He obviously has some position of responsibility and authority within the party. But a person like this is what is what a movement like Nazism requires. I, but what gets left out of that is, to me, it, it feels like, and I, here we're going to wander from the story a little bit, but looking at the Nazis, it's hard not to conclude that if at any point Hitler had been removed from the equation in the 1930s, or early 1940s, that Nazism would have collapsed on itself. It requires a particular leader who's immune to criticism. And of course, this person isn't immune to criticism, ultimately. However, heroically, they believe they're acting, you know, they're acting uh, of a piece with a movement that has a kind of power or energy. They're not inspiring anyone. This is a, a, an aristocrat. This is somebody for whom it's convenient to take part in a movement. This isn't the, the, the catalyst for the movement itself. In a, in a certain sense, he's one of the greatest dupes of all because you see his, he has the intellectual capacity to choose any number of paths uh, for himself. And he has this relative who is an academic who seems like he's doing interesting work with Hegel. And that's the, the project of his ancestor is pretty cool. But instead, he decides to look at all of the instances in history when the Germanic people took up the sword against a group that they didn't want to, to do anything with. Arminius and the Romans, of course, which is a big part of the Nazi myth. The Germans throwing off the yoke of the Roman Empire and, uh, and heroically be, becoming the authors of their own culture and destiny totally ahistorical, has nothing to do with, with history as, as it occurred. But to the Nazis, that was very important, that they were the ones that, you know, the barbarism itself was the center of their civilization, barbarism and heroism and, and strength. But here he is, you know, at the docket. I think about the character of Hitler. Hitler is at the heart of Nazism. Um, so this ideal Nazi has constructed a kind of thing in his head that is very ahistorical. Hitler is mentioned towards the end. Um, it's kind of building up to this, you know, ridiculous, contradictory climax where it says Hitler's, Hitler thought he was fighting for a nation, but he was fighting for all nations, even for those he attacked and abominated. It does not matter that his ego was unaware of that. His blood, his will knew. And then we kind of get a twist where it's not just, um, you know, the Jews that they're going to kill off, but it's also the world of Christianity. And the whole point, according to him, is the violence and faith in the sword. And just because they happen to have lost the war, they still win because the violence itself is the new world they have created. And it, it kind of builds up with these you know, one epigram after another, and, you know, an allusion to ancient King David, ironically, who, uh, who judged a man to be killed and then found out that he was that man. So they've created this new world where they were destroyed, but they brought in the violence and uh, they've killed compassion. So that's kind of the strange I think it's almost like a twist ending. It's building up to that where like nothing else he says he believed in really mattered. Yeah, he had to kill his own compassion by torturing and killing people who were imprisoned. Uh, he proved his own uh, valor and lack of cowardice by, by doing that and by living up to his ancestors. But in the end, this was all for a bigger cause, which was just the violence in itself. And um, yeah, he references Armenius. He references uh, Martin Luther, 
who translated the Bible and helped create Germany, who would actually also rebel against Christianity with the Nazis. And it's all just a big mess of disgusting, you know, contradictions. Yeah, it's hard to, to grasp. It's, it's powerful, but also revolting. I still see this as Borges trying to justify, you know, if he w had been a Nazi, this is how he would have, you know, written his apology. There's one other great thing that I loved about the story, which is at the very end, we're left with this before the footnotes. He looks at himself in the mirror. I feel that that idea of the person, of a person being able to look at themselves in the mirror, we use this uh, colloquially to describe a person being at peace with themselves. If you can go home and look at yourself in the mirror and, and have a kind of honest assessment of at least one's own reflection, one is doing something correctly. So the idea that one could go through all of these things, get to the very end of it, and finish one's justification of one's life by looking in the mirror and having that be comfortable or settling is so disturbing. And I suppose on its own presents the final, the most compelling piece of the protagonist's argument that this punishment, his own execution, becomes the final proof in his argument that Nazism has won, that he is being executed, which is his logic. His logic is you, you can only resolve these problems through violence. There's no diplomacy here. There's no talking it out. There's no educating. All you can do with this person is to kill them. And that is what they're saying. That's, that's what he is saying. He's saying, you can only kill your enemies. It is. I love that line at the end, Adrian. I mean, it's funny because it reminds me of another Borges story where he has a line about like mirrors are abominations because they replicate us or duplicate us. And this protagonist, I look at my face in the mirror in order to know who I am. And this idea that he gets his identity by the reflection, the thing that he sees, that is it. And so to me, that's like this horrific admission about selfhood for this, this person. And as you all were talking, it's kind of making me think, I've read the story a couple of times now, it's been a year thinking about it. Like the guy is kind of, he's kind of a failure. Like if you look at his life, like from the beginning, like he messes up at everything he wants to do. Um, he's, he wants to be an artist, a theologian, and he's like, he doesn't get there, he can't make it. Then he's gonna be a soldier and he gets shot in some riot and then he becomes, uh, and so he can't be a soldier. And he compares, this, this line's telling to me, I think, about the third page in, he's, he's sitting in the hospital when the Nazi invasions start uh, because he's been shot in the leg. And he says, on the windowsill slept a massive obese cat, the symbol of my vain destiny. And he's reading Schopenhauer. And also there's a funny editorial note at the bottom. It says like, it is rumored that the wound had extremely serious consequences. Like, what does that mean? It's like a Borges joke. I mean, wait, he lost a leg, but there's something else going on there. But then, that part you read earlier, David, when he's talking about like, it's harder to be Paul than be eaten by the lion. It's harder to live than be killed. It's harder to be Raskolnikov, which is true. It's miserable. If you know that character, it's like the saddest thing in the world. It's pathetic, right? You're not Napoleon. But yet he makes his whole like philosophy in order to justify his failures. And you see this kind of building up, like you see that initially he can't fight in the war like a real soldier, so he becomes a concentration camp commandant and just murders people, and then tries to justify his own murders. But you have that kind of strain going to the end. And that's why I think to me, as you're saying earlier, both of you, like that ending is such a great twist because it's him. The Nazis lost, this is written in 1947. Uh, and if he's writing to his like Argentinian sympathizers and thinking people who thought about the Nazis and were like, go Nazis. They, of course, everyone's immediately justifying them losing. And of course, the whole time, the justification's been there because they're like, the losing is the winning. The violence is in of itself. And a lot of different writers have taken this and I know like Philip K. Dick wrote like Man in the High Castle and things like that where like technically the Nazis did win the war because we became more violent as a globe and so on. Um, but I do think Borges is just pointing towards or making fun of this kind of way of justifying failure and turning into something that it's not. I don't know, I find it kind of amusing. And it, it becomes, no matter what you do, they're still winning. There's still a moral act there. There's something comic about it too, on some level. 
it's someone whose life is lived in a mirror rather than actually living their life. You have that Jerusalem character standing as some kind of antithesis. He's the poet. He's the one that succeeded at like creating something versus this character who did nothing but go from failure to failure to some new justification of that failure. I feel this is something to the whole fascist aesthetic there that, that he's making fun of. Exactly, Mike. I, I think you said this guy is actually a failure his whole life, but you have to carefully read at least a second time to probably pick up on this and think that's part of it. Because we start, you know, hearing the the valiant exploits of the, the forebears in war. And uh, then, like I said, he, he keeps mentioning how he doesn't want to appear cowardly. He's brave. He mentions a little bit too often. And in the end, we find out, oh, I got shot in the leg when I was helping to burn a synagogue and they had to amputate. And uh, yeah, like you said, he gives his justification for how it's harder to suffer and uh, quiet than to be a, the, act the loud hero. And then he gives the line, oh, I was made uh, director of the concentration camp, by the way. And then he mentions, uh, I had to uh, destroy David Jerusalem in order to destroy my own compassion. I don't know if he realized that. I had, uh, you know, to do this for myself. But in the end, yeah, he's, we kind of see by the end, he is the coward. He's a failure. He's obviously self-loathing. He hasn't lived up to his ancestors, uh, the tall tales. And also in the end, like you mentioned, he looks in the mirror to finish the line. It's, he, he looked in order to know who I am, to know how I shall comport myself within a few hours when I face the end. My flesh may feel fear, I myself do not. But what does that even mean? So there he's, he's saying, oh yeah, well, maybe I'll be afraid. Am I going to be able to stand up to this biggest challenge because I actually am a coward? But then he says, I myself do not. He, he is not his flesh. He's something even beyond that, you know, his whole life, he's been a failure and he's been trying to overcompensate by causing suffering to other people. And oh yeah, he also read some books that were popular at the time that told him, uh, no, it's okay, you can still be a Superman. And uh, Germany is the, you know, is the chosen country. And, you know, there's Spangler who had his theory of history, which is also ridiculous. And in the end, he's built all this up out of his own shortcomings, his own cowardice, his failure. And all he ever really did was be one of the cogs in the machine that inflicted suffering on others, a functionary and a commander who happily broke uh, other humans and still at the end is trying to sell us his lie that it was for some fantastic world. But actually, he is afraid because he knows it's not true. We read that through the lines. And I think that's Borges once again playing a joke, but it's, it's more serious than a joke. It's, um, you know, he's, he's telling us, he's giving us the clues because all the, the references and the, the intertextuality and everything in Borges is not just random. I mean, every reference to any name or any, um, you know, work of the past, it's all done very specifically for a reason. And I think that's uh, the point we've got here. You know, another point I wanted to make there was, according to Zerlinda's schema, you know, you have suffering, and we know this from the Nazis as well, the pieces of Nietzsche that they stole all revolve around the importance of suffering, the importance of becoming, you know, the sort of overcoming your suffering, over enduring pain, overcoming this, this crisis of the spirit, but also of the flesh which probably Zerlinda believes that he has done through his injuries and through the insults to Germany, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, David Jerusalem actually is the person that has been placed in the greatest suffering of all in a concentration camp and endures months or years of uh, deliberately inflicted cruelty from Zerlinda and people like Zerlinda. And so in the schema that is created by Zerlinda, Zerlinda and the other Nazis are actually the mechanism by which the people that they are inflicting pain upon are the ones 
who have this opportunity to encounter the kind of Nietzschean struggle that they themselves hope for, and that they, you know, then um, ultimately avoid because, you know, like, like with others, he, here he is in a prison looking at a, a mirror, uh, looking at a, a reflected image of himself and contemplating his, uh, you know, the details of his life and, and the justification for it. And that's about as bad as it gets for him. But all he has done is inflicted pain on other people. Like that, that is the great, the, the monumental accomplishment of him and his movement was to torture and hurt people on a certain level. But again, even by the schema that he has presented, he is not somebody who deserves um, any admiration or pity or anything. He doesn't, he's just a pathetic figure, not a tragic figure, a pathetic figure, because he doesn't see it at the end. He doesn't realize that he has only succeeded, succeeded in instrumentalizing himself. Um, that doesn't make you a hero in the Nazi narrative. That makes you like, like uh, you were both saying earlier, like a cog in the machine. It kind of gets at the, uh, the epigraph. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. The Job reference at the beginning, it just makes me think like, if this is, if he sees himself as this kind of heroic Nietzschean uber whatever, overcoming Christianity and Judaism, he's actually like this ultimate representation of the Job who's, who's kind of embracing the God uh, who's done this to him and has that trust. And yeah, in a way, if there is any hero, like you're saying, it's David Jerusalem who lives out I kind of like that idea, that Nietzschean myth, uh, more so than this comic, uh, pity, to be pitied Nazi-like figure who is like Job, just um, in his imagination, and comes crawling back to the Christian God and really the, the Judaic God that he says he detests, um, which is interesting. That epigraph there uh, from Job, I think, I guess we have to assume that's from Borges, the author, and not from the character. But once again, that, even that's a reference to the Jewish, you know, Old Testament, just like later he mentions uh, King David of the Jews. And uh, so, yeah, it's a little bit ironical, but even the title, Deutsches Requiem, is um, a requiem for the German. And that's also the title of a Brahms work of music. And Brahms is mentioned as one of the heroes of this character. Brahms, who was, he held in uh, esteem for the infinite variety of his worlds. He, uh, felt awe and wonder and gratitude by listening to Brahms and reading Shakespeare. And, um, and that's also the title of this work, but it's a secular work. It's not a, a religious requiem. So it's kind of, it's the theme of uh, the pagan Germanic myths of old, the barbarians who were still stronger than the compassionate Christian world. Uh, it's also a little bit Nietzschean. Nietzsche hated Christianity and that idea. And um, yeah, so it's building some, you know, some allusions to that. You know, the twist ending here that, you know, this guy, he didn't think they were just killing off the Jews, but they were even killing off the entire world of Western Christianity. And they were building up the, uh, you know, the great Germanic pagan uh, super state that would last forever or whatever and uh, build a new world of brave warriors, but also uh, intellectual people like him, like Nietzsche, you know, who, yeah, but in the end, this guy, you know, probably was like Nietzsche in a way, who was a sickly, extremely sad, lonely guy who was, you know, a failure in some regards, not literary, but in life. And um, yeah, it's kind of uh, overcompensation for something here. But anyway, I think that's, uh, those are some of my ideas about it. But once again, to the text itself, the, the sentence level, um, just going over it again, really the literature here is just uh, some breathtaking lines. Borges could capture a whole world in one sentence and even in parenthetical statements. He, he manages to make these extremely thought-provoking comparisons and contradictions and encapsulations of entire ways of thinking and references to other literary philosophical ideas. And just the fact that he's doing that over and over, almost too much in this guy's fake uh, last will and testament, but it just, the weight of it all, 
one sentence after another, one illusion after another. And then, you know, he punctuates it with, oh, and by the way, I, then I destroyed and killed this guy. But then the next line is uh, the thrilling emotion of the war. If we take away the context of what's actually happening and who this guy is, it's, it's just some magnificent writing here. So I think that's part of the power of it, at least, you know, people like us who enjoy literature. I remember the first time I read this story a, a year ago or whenever it was, maybe over a year ago, I remember feeling the weight of that requiem because that's, Hitler did succeed in destroying great swaths of Europe. The Nazis didn't deny anything to anyone except to the right to live to groups of people. and. It said, so long as you embrace the desire to do violence to one of the, whatever group we're pointing our finger at right now, or whatever groups we're pointing our finger at, then you're good. You can be uh, Jewish, you can be Christian, you can be a Bolshevik. I mean, many uh, Russian POWs that had been communists were permitted to serve in the Wehrmacht and I think it was 1942 or 43. I mean, it was a completely capricious and arbitrary system in which violence was the, the, the end goal. Uh, that was that was the desired state was a war of all against all. As a result of that, it really did discredit a great deal, many many systems um, and structures that had previously animated Europe. I th you, you look, for example, at the aristocracy of Europe, which is you know it's it still has some sway. It's it's still important in some places, but France, Italy, Austria, Germany places that had uh, Hungary, you know, it, it, people with aristocratic titles these days are sort of, you know, they're relics. They're, they may have some, they may have held on to some money or influence in their family through political maneuvering some, but the only place that it really still exists on any meaningful level uh, are the places that, that didn't side with the Nazis, you know, the uh, England, you know, they still have a, a very wealthy monarchy. I think that there's a certain type of old European elite, uh, centuries old, that was washed away by the Nazis because that elite was complicit. Um, this type of person, this type of voice was complicit in carrying out the, the horrors. In Italy, for example, uh, Mussolini was quite popular until he allied himself with Hitler. And because of the king at the time, you know, the House of Savoy, allowing Mussolini to be the dictator and run roughshod over the country for a couple decades. The, the king himself became extremely unpopular by the end of the war, which Italy lost. And in 1946, Italy actually voted to abolish the monarchy. And so that's kind of a lesson for, you know, what happens if you support dictators and you ally with even worse dictators, you know, we, the people aren't gonna support that institution anymore. So that's one good thing that came um, in Italy, I think, but just from the point of view of this story, I don't know. The guy is obviously a pathetic figure. In the end, though, he might have a point because the ideas of Nazism did survive, as we sadly know today. And it's kind of the worst lesson of all. It, yeah, you've killed us. I'm, I'm about to die. Hitler already blew his brains out. But, you know, even uh, 60 years, 100 years later, people are still gonna be convinced by our arguments that violence is good and they're gonna see us as heroes. So, you know, one of the things that makes it so powerful because we always have to be on guard. Yeah, I started off and I, I, I must have rambled for, for four or five minutes there about Europe and the destruction of Europe, but Deutsches Requiem, the Requiem to an old type of Europe or an old conception of a country or a nation because it, that, that was hijacked by and turned into a very sad and pathetic justification for doing violence to others ultimately that's what it boiled down to that's what the german empire became and the germ the germans were the last country in europe to unify i think the last major country um italy unified shortly before germany did but germany unified and you know unified through an act of war the franco-prussian war in 1870 so it's the birth of that that conception of a nation and people was categorically and completely put to rest there in Germany, at any rate, in 1945. But as you say, David, the, this, this idea, this concept lives on. And 
I don't think there's any country that more people know or group of people that the people of another country know and admire in a certain respect than Nazi Germany, than the Germans, that conception of the, the militaristic country that will go to war with anybody. You see it all over the world. You see it in India. You see it in China. You see it in throughout the Middle East. Hitler, in places where people have no context for what Hitler did, he is seen simply as a great war maker who, who, who set the world on fire. Um, and there are always groups of people who will look at that admiringly. Uh, and the less context they have, the more admiration they have for him. The more context you have for the Nazis, the harder it is to look at them with anything other than revulsion or fear as people that admire them get greater political power uh, in the West and elsewhere. There's a quote about Nazis that sticks with me a lot, which was in Martin Amos's book about uh, Joseph Stalin. And he's discussing the relative evil of Stalin and Hitler and other dictators and something we do if we look into history a bit, but what really made Hitler and the Nazis so much worse than all the others? You can't quite put your finger on it sometimes if you look at other contexts, but you know, he had this simple phrase that the Nazis had just uh, created a species shame. It's just something much stronger, viscerally and emotionally uh, more disgusting than anything else we could imagine from the numbers and the gulags or in China or anywhere else, you know, the, the Nazi regime and, you know, people like this character just is a, a shame on the entire species that can never be washed away. It's always a hard thing to pin down this, this discussion, but I think there is something about what you're both saying in terms of like, I like that shame quote too, David, because when I think of like the appeal of the Nazi aesthetic, like the whole idea of them is like just the shamelessness of it. That's the word always pops in my head. And like, and how a character like this, and like we talked about the way they justify what they've done, uh, no matter what happens to them, just this inability to, to feel that compunction or shame in any ways is incredibly attractive. And it has a lot to do with, we get stuff about history and the Germans and who they were, but that I think that's the attraction of the, the whole Nazi thing is like um, just how shameful it was. And then people who are attracted to shamelessness find this something to enthuse over and to get excited about. It's a freedom from all the restraints. And I think that's very much present at all times. And you see this popping up in terms of the particulars of the 1930s and the 1940s, something that we have to be, I guess, always careful about our, our attraction to the shameless and shamelessness. Yeah, shamelessness and uh, self-righteousness, intransigence and uh, appeal to violence. Those are dangerous things. We know they're still around. They're a big part of our primitive human brain. Yeah, I guess what makes it so scary then when we see very intellectual, seemingly learned people uh, using those tools instead of idiotic buffoons and um, uneducated people, it, it doesn't fit. So when we get this character or someone using supposedly sophisticated logic and language to be shameless and violent and self-righteous, uh, the same way as a, a dictator or a thug would be. Is, that's what's so, the most disconcerting, but it's still all the same thing in the end. And when you take yourself out of, one is able to enjoy shamelessness as a thinking moral creature, not as a sociopath or psychopath, somebody who is incapable of feeling shame because they're incapable of feeling empathy because they don't understand shame. If a thinking person is to take themselves out of uh, a, an ethical framework, that what they lose in civilization and being able to enjoy hospitality, the hospitality of neighbors, friends, or family, in becoming a monster, essentially, what they, what they gain is um, freedom from fear because they have become fear itself. But civilization isn't compatible with that. And it's, it's a mistake to say that Judeo-Christian civilization is incompatible with that. The truth is all civilization is incompatible with that. 
I think anybody, any literate person or anybody hearing this story, the story of, of Zerlinda would immediately recognize that this is a person that has taken themselves out from civilization. Uh, but this is probably as good a place as any to end the episode. Um, any final thoughts? I'm gonna jump in and go back to your, your Wikipedia point real quickly. <laughs> because I think ending on this idea, because that's what Zerlinda wants to believe, that the new man can exist and he is this new man. And I like how Borea said, he's like, you know what, I, I imagine this, right? But at the end of the day, those Nazis were crying for their lives um, and were filled with shame. They weren't new men, they're just men. Um, and I think that is, I think it's imperative that we remember that, not um, kind of buy into the cult of the possibility of the shamelessness. And the uh, Zerlinda himself is someone to be pitied, in my opinion. Right. They're cowards, they're ugly, and they're failures. That's the most important takeaway, I think. Mm -hmm.